Welcome to the Better Call Daddy Show, the number one podcast where we admit no matter what happens, daddy has the advice we need to fix our problems. Introducing my dad, Mr. Wayne Friedman. That was good. It would be nice if you could also sing a song. What would the song be? You love Paris in the springtime. I just made up some words to it. I love Rena in the springtime. I love Rena in the fall. <laughs> That's right. That's good enough. <laughs> oh boy. Let's dive in. Introducing Katie. Today, she's going to take the edge off of sex education, and we're keeping our clothes on. Katie, welcome. So where are you from? From Australia, but living in Iowa. That's a long ways. Yes. (laughs) How did that happen? I studied at Iowa State, and turns out that's actually at the very end how I met my husband. Yeah, did the long distance thing, and then finally ended up in the same country as one another after a long time. Did you meet him in sex ed? No, actually, um, (laughs) I did take a class there, though, which was incredibly interesting about that. (laughs) But yeah, met him at the last like two weeks that I was actually in the country. Perfect timing. Yes, I know. I was like, I've I've been there for like a year and like, of course, my luck for the last two weeks. How long did you do long distance? I think we ended up doing about two years of it. What are the differences between Australia and Iowa? I used to live so close to the beach that it was like maybe three, three minutes walk to the beach. So you could like hear the ocean of a night Um, here. It's corn. (laughs) So a little bit different that way. But the Midwest nice thing is so much nicer than, I mean, I always thought Australians were really nice. And then I came over here and I was like, these Midwest people are another level. (laughs) Do they drink the same alcohol? Pretty much. Pretty much. I think, uh, granted, like, the the mug nights at Iowa State, like, granted, I'm wearing an Iowa State sweatshirt. (laughs) The Iowans can definitely put away the alcohol, (laughs) like the Australians. (laughs) All right. So talk to me about sex education. I kind of got into sex ed being a health and physical education teacher, and I did a lot of substitute teaching and saw the students were asking the same questions over and over again. And I kind of noticed a pattern. I was like, okay, if I move to a different school, they're the same teaching in Australia. Then I taught in the U S as well. And the questions were the same. So I was like, okay, there's, there's gotta be a a solution here because there's a non understanding across like regions, countries, age groups, everything like that. And I ended up in health promotion for a little bit where I worked with other teachers, community health professionals, teaching them, how to approach sex ed with their students, with their clients and get comfortable having those conversations. And I found out through like trial and error and talking to them that people really didn't feel comfortable having those conversations. So that was kind of where I thought, okay, you know what, there's, there's gotta be a way that I can help people because it's clear we need to have these conversations, but people don't feel comfortable. Like they don't have the tools, they don't have the words and essentially like a a guideline of of what to say and when. So I decided I'd come up with something to kind of help that and came up with my, my company, the Parent Sex Ed Blueprint. It's essentially like an online course that helps parents work through the kind of common kind of questions with that. So what do I say? What do I, like, when do I say it? How do I say it age appropriately and things like that? So I kind of like step them through what I'd found through my experience. Definitely something that I had hesitations with at the beginning. I started out as a kind of right at the end of my 
degree, I was in a classroom and found how uncomfortable I was myself at the start of my journey. So I didn't like how I felt at all. I was like, okay, I'm going to remedy this because I decided to kind of delve into doing research and kind of gathered all those pieces of information so I would feel comfortable and kind of put that into a toolkit to help other people and hopefully we can make those changes to be able to get parents comfortable because they're their child's number one resource from birth all the way through. I had a friend on the show that first had two girls and now has a boy around my son's age. And she asked me, what do you do when they wake up hard? That's always a fun conversation. I'm a big fan of preempting. So when you know they're getting around the teenage years was when kind of nocturnal emissions, like wet dreams, would be considered something that might happen. Granted, if they're younger and that's happening, it's just like kind of the body's reaction and it's fine, it's normal, nothing to worry about. It's just the way the body works sometimes. It's definitely not any kind of sexual desire of any means at a young age. And then using, I suppose, responsibility, adding. So you're helping teach them how to take care of the the sheets on the bed, how to use the washing machine, how to use the dryer. So you're teaching them these skills so they can respond to it. And potentially at the same time, you're teaching them about, okay, you know what, this this may happen. If this happens, this is what you do. Don't worry. Like you're giving them the steps and you're reassuring them that it's totally normal, happens to most people. And then it's just a matter of kind of creating that environment where they can come to you and ask questions, but giving them the resources to manage that themselves. And then also you're teaching them how to help you with laundry and things like that too. So have children asked you why that happens? Not um, explicitly in the classroom. I mean, I've definitely got some other curly questions, but never like why that's happening. I mean, if people ask about the why, it's just being really factual in answers, I think kind of helps particularly parents being able to answer those questions if they're not very comfortable. So you're just explaining, look, it's just part of the the sleep cycle. Sometimes this does happen and it's just the body's reaction to the part of the sleep cycle you're in. And it's just part of puberty. So like a rush of blood? I mean, it kind of depends how you want to approach it, but that's essentially what <laughs> what happens. There's a rush of blood, there's a release, and um, we kind of go from there. But it depends on on their age, how much you've spoken to and also how comfortable parents are with those things. And a big thing that I'm always encouraging is have little conversations and then bring it back to other parts. So you can say, oh, remember when we talked about this, that way you're not kind of putting too much information onto them at once. So they're more likely to retain it. And then that way it's less confronting for you. I also feel like even shows that are on television or on Netflix now are introducing things a lot earlier and questions are coming from things that my kids are watching. Oh, absolutely. There's definitely like a change. I mean, granted, when I was like younger, maybe I didn't notice it that much. I just kind of seemed as normal. Now, now maybe I'm probably hyper aware of it. Now I'm like, oh, I've got to like screen, watch these things to make sure (laughs) that I'm doing things the way I want my children to see things. And if, if I know something is coming up, I'm able to preempt those things. And with 
any kind of topics that come up, like if there's an erection or something like that in a show that you're watching together, having a factual response is really helpful. A lot of the time adults overthink how to respond because your brain immediately goes, oh my goodness, I need to explain this, 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 and you overthink it. But if you just bring it back to that keep it simple principle of just answer the question that they asked. And then if anything else comes from that, you just kind of piece it together to keep it as simple as you can. And that way sweat free as you can for yourself as well. I want to know some of the curly questions you've been asked. Oh yes. So one was, I think they were intentionally looking to get a little bit of a rise. Like students always kind of like, see if they can poke (laughs) to get a reaction, but they kind of asked what is cunnilingus. I mean, I set the tone where this is a place where you can ask any questions. I'm a big fan of being silly to diffuse that tension when I'm teaching. That's one of the questions. I do things to make it a little bit funny, particularly with the high school age kids explaining about how to use a condom with how like the top rolls pretending it's a hat. So that way <laughs> that A, they're not going to forget how to roll that down because they're going to be like, oh my goodness, did you see that ridiculous <laughs> teacher? And maybe it starts a conversation outside of the class too, where they can then have that conversation with their peers. But just doing little things like that. A lot of the questions were asking about how the body functions, like, can I get pregnant from oral sex and just general kind of quick care about the body, explaining about urinary tract infections and how the bacteria may enter different places and how you can prevent that was another kind of avenue of of questions. One of my kids asked, like, do you guys actually do that for pleasure or do you only do it to have babies? Oh, there you go. Hey, you know what? They must trust you as someone that they can come to and ask questions, which is fantastic. (laughs) And how did you respond to that? I let my husband answer. Oh, there you go. (laughs) Sometimes it takes people aback and you need a kind of a little bit to process with that. But that I, the, the pleasure conversation is probably one that most people are really uncomfortable with having. And I mean, bringing it back to keeping things factual, just saying, look, sex can be something people do for pleasure. It also is for the purposes of, of making babies and, th- and things like that, like just kind of having that factual response. Well, I have a 12-year-old and a one-year-old, so my 12-year-old wanted to know where that baby came from. Oh, yep. Understandable. <laughs> That's the part where I like to lead into... You, you start the where the babies come from, but you start with like family. So you have like the, look, this is how different families are. Some, some families are made up like this, made up like that. And then you lead into those questions. <laughs> but I'm like, sure, uh, go ahead. So daddy gave you his DNA? <laughs> hey, there you go. <laughs> oh, well, that's it. very intuitive. <laughs> what ages have you worked with? I've worked with upper elementary through to high school and obviously adults as well. There's always those questions that come from the younger ones that you kind of wonder. (laughs) Also, when you have older siblings, you learn things earlier. Oh, absolutely. But kind of funny story. My younger sister, she's, she's seven years younger than me. And at the time I must've been old enough to be watching friends like the series. And we had a cat, that became pregnant and 
I think my mother tried to use that situation as a lead in to say, oh, do you know how babies are made? And my sister responds with like the cat's, like cat's names. Yeah, she got knocked up. And I think my mom, <laughs> I think my mom's jaw about dropped <laughs> for that. But she, she was probably only like maybe five or six at the time. So for the response that she picked up from a TV show that <laughs> we were not aware of. <laughs> was very entertaining and, and a little concerning, but I even had a kid ask me if <laughs> me and my husband sucked each other's toes. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> That's the wonderful thing about like kids. They just come out with the most amazing questions that you <laughs> You just kind of wonder how that, that happened and, the, and just went straight out the mouth. <laughs> I was like, have you seen your father's feet? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good way to diffuse it. <laughs> what were the hard subjects for you to talk about in the beginning? I suppose getting comfortable using the terms, like specifically like addressing the genital terms correctly. That was something that was very confronting. I mean, I myself by no means had an extensive experience learning sex ed. It was just very kind of basic. Puberty book was given to me to before I went to school and then had the, um, the where the birds and the bees lesson came from. But being able to be comfortable saying words like penis, vagina, vulva, and just being able to name those comfortably without feeling the need to kind of shrink, I suppose, just because we're not always comfortable using those words. And when I started out, that was definitely something that became very apparent when you, you kind of been taught your whole life, don't say these words, like they've got a negative connotation and then you're standing up in front of 30 students using these words and questions are coming at you as well. Do they ask you the other words associated with those words? They typically do. I mean, I, I kind of encouraged it just to kind of get those sillies out because I mean, even sometimes as an adult, you kind of want to giggle at the words, but just encouraging them to call out the different words that we know, like yelling, like, oh, there's always someone that yells boobies and things like that. So that's always a good way to, to set the environment to know that it's one that they can talk about. This one's different than other classes and that they won't get in trouble for asking or saying something. I love that. So are you just like, one, two, three, everybody say a private part. Yeah. That way no one's put on the spot. We all just, we all share those words <laughs> and you kind of like write on the board to see which ones are the most, the ones you can hear the most. <laughs> and you just write them all up there. Yep. We're trying to take the, the stigma and the charge out of those words. So then we can kind of flow through the, to the next part of like understanding the functions and how to take care of bodies and everything. Do you talk to them about how people shouldn't touch them inappropriately? Yes. I look to cover consent. Granted, the consent aspect, if covered by parents from like a really young age, definitely helps because you can model as a parent from the age that they're a toddler, you can start asking permission. A good example is tweaking a few words. Typically, we're so used to parents giving instructions, children following them. And when the aspect of like saying goodbye to a friend or family member, saying like, Johnny, we're leaving, go give aunt a hug. They're kind of given that instruction, even if they don't feel like they want to do it. And if they don't do it, they're kind of seen as they're not obeying 
what the instruction was. But if you tweak it to say, look, Johnny, we're leaving, please go give aunt a hug or a high five. You're giving them choice and then they're consenting to that interaction and they're starting to learn that they are the person that decides who is in their kind of personal space bubble and modeling that consent is something that's you're essentially getting building blocks and kind of stacking it up on top of each other. So you're working with them to slowly know, okay, you know what? I need to give permission for someone to touch me, whether that's a hug, like high five, just any kind of aspect. So you can start with those areas. You can say, are you done with this? Would you like help with that? Including it in like teachable moments with your child. So they get used to needing to have someone ask for permission. Then they do the same thing that way. When, if someone happens to, touch them without gaining consent, that's an automatic red flag for them. And then that way you've, you've given them the skills and the tools to, if, so, if that happens, you go tell your parents. There are no body secrets. When do kids start being interested in each other? It depends on probably, like you mentioned, the, if they have older siblings. I've kind of seen it from as early as second grade, but it's kind of hard to put an exact thing on that. Also, have young girls talked to you about the changing of their bodies? And do you find that maybe boys don't want to talk to you about that as much? I definitely think young boys are typically more resistant to having those conversations. It's great to have both sexes in those conversations. So we're learning, okay, this is what's happening to one person's body. This is what's happening to another. So there can be more empathy and understanding and a lot of the trying to take the the negative charge out of menstruation so we can kind of be like yep that's a natural part of the body it's that's just what happens and we manage it we and we can help each other yeah what else do you say about menstruation do you mention like you either get that or you have a baby it kind of lead into like it's just it's part of the kind of way the hormones and the bodies are changing because at the time around puberty, the body will start going through those specific changes. And one of those is like the change of the hormones, the breasts start to grow and develop, you'll not like hair under your armpit, pubic hair, and different aspects of that. And part of it is when you reach a certain age, some people menstruation may start from the age of 10, and maybe as delayed as 16. So you've got kind of a scope, always better to prepare them beforehand. So they're never in a situation where they feel, oh my goodness, this has happened. What is this? Am I like, worst case scenario, am I dying? (laughs) You're explaining over the course of the month, the hormone cycles, the lining of the uterus builds up. And then if there's no egg that gets implanted, then it just sheds the uterine lining. And that results in the menstruation and it looks like blood. What did the boys ask you? They're probably more on the side of asking about like sexual activity more than anything else. They are kind of less concerned with the changes of their body. Being a teacher in a classroom, I'm fairly an open book with that. But at the same time, I know that there's some things that should come that can come from school and there's some things that need to come from the parent. So whatever I share and disclose, I need to be ready to kind of back that up with, if I had a parent on the phone giving me a call saying, this is what Johnny came home and said that that was shared in class. And then like, there's that kind of justification. But I really try to 
cover the fact that any kind of s sexual act needs to be protected and explaining like the reasons why. So A, you would ideally like to avoid an unintended pregnancy and B, you want to mitigate the um, exchange of bodily fluids, particularly with STIs, so sexually transmissible infections and using that barrier method for whether that's applying a condom to a person with a penis or using a, it's called a dental dam. It's, <laughs> there's gotta be a better name for it, but that's, that's essentially what it is. But most people don't know. It's like a sheet, a square sheet of latex that you would essentially place over the top of a vulva or an anus with that so you're you're mitigating the any kind of bodily fluids exchanging because that's where the contamination of like stis and things like that you want to keep keep people safe have you ever used one of those i have bought that out in classes and the funny thing is they're most often flavored so I, there was one class that decided they wanted to taste the um blueberry flavor of the dental dam. Oh my God, the blueberry dental dam. <laughs> yes, they decided they wanted to uh, lick it. So they did. <laughs> I feel like talking to a variety of ages, you probably have to say things differently. Oh, absolutely. I try to equate it to something that's in their life. If it's like a younger age, trying to make it like appropriate. So depends on my role within the school, but with the younger kids, if they're asking about where babies come from, you kind of can equate it to maybe they did a science experiment where they had a seed and they planted it and it grew and you're explaining it like the seed is like the egg, the sperm is like the fertilizer, like the water that you're adding to it to help it grow and you're equating it and that's how you make it age appropriate for them as well. What if they think it sounds gross? Happens all the time. <laughs> In a situation where they're a little bit resistant, you kind of take your foot off the pedal with how you're approaching that. That kind of feels a little bit more like a parent role to kind of hopefully, I mean, in a perfect world, the parent would introduce this first, the school would add that information and the parent would continue to have that information and help them develop with those areas. It is something that some people may feel kind of gross with learning about, particularly if it's their like first instance when they're at school and they're having this talk and they hadn't had any previous information about it. That's definitely a shock to the system. I would kind of encourage follow-up questions with the student to kind of help them process because that can be a, a bit of an information overload when you're having that kind of puberty lesson at school and it's all kind of put out on the table essentially for them to take in and it's a kind of a lot of information potentially loop in parents to be able to say look this is what we discussed he did mention that he felt like a little uneased this is probably something you can kind of speak to him about and just make sure he's okay with aspects and just referencing yourself as a point of contact have you had parents say to you i wasn't ready to have that conversation I have a lot of parents say we're not there yet that's like <laughs> that that to me feels a little bit like it's it's a complicated matter that they don't want to address because they don't have the tools to do that so they're kind of kicking that down the road a little bit until the school gets to it 
and then then that can kind of be a situation where they feel like they're not ready for it there's a bit of an overload the big thing i like to encourage people to do is realize sex ed is a lot more than just sexual acts what we experienced probably growing up with puberty if we had that education it's a lot more so the model i kind of operate from is it's called the flower model of sexuality and it's based on work by joe adams and carol painter and it's essentially a more positive mental health assisting self-esteem building model and so you're looking at kind of the whole aspects where a lot of the stuff is not actually kind of sexual it's areas of identity so you're helping children understand that this is their role in the family when they go to school this may be a different role that they're assuming roles within friendship group and how to cope with friendship groups growing and changing and how to navigate that as part of like the social and emotional side kids definitely need that oh absolutely did you ever have anything growing up that made you feel uncomfortable in the puberty realm? Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> so my kind of puberty story is my parents put a puberty book on my bed and I came home from my friend's house to find this book and we hadn't had any conversations. There was none after it. It was just kind of here, you like to read, <laughs> here's this book to self-learn. And then I think a few weeks later, we had like the big bring everyone together, have these conversations with the puberty aspects. But the birds and the bees video, I think it was them trying to have a equating this to that. And I just remember for weeks afterwards, I was like, I can't even look at flowers anymore. <laughs> <laughs> like it was it was a long time and like my parents at the time weren't willing to talk about it so I was kind of just walking around being like oh my gosh the whole world is is different than I thought it was <laughs> so I was one of those overload children <laughs> do you remember getting your first bra I remember being really embarrassed to walk down the aisles in Target that had the bras <laughs> and it was like a really weird experience going with my mom hindsight like one area that I think helps parents a lot is talking shoulder to shoulder when you're doing something because then it takes away that awkward eye contact. So it's not like one of these sit down at the, on the couch, sit down at the kitchen table and like have these conversations as you're looking directly at each other and everyone collectively feels awkward. I feel like it's easier today because there's Amazon and there's cuter bras. Oh, absolutely. I think mine were so like, <laughs> it was like, a, I remember it was like a white and a sky blue, but it was like really dorky. <laughs> I just remember my mom was like, it's time. And I was like, please go stand like 30 feet away from me. <laughs> yeah, I don't know you. I don't know you. <laughs> I tried to wear like oversized sweatshirts as long as I could. Yes. A piece of advice I offer is like starting to set up those boundaries. So when they're getting to that puberty age, Things like if they have their own bedroom, if the door is closed, you knock on the door, you either wait for permission to enter or you wait for the person who owns the bedroom to come and open the door. So you're kind of setting those boundaries. So if the masturbation conversation comes up, you've already kind of set that public versus private space. And you're also modeling that through like your own bedroom as well. I definitely need to have that conversation. They are not knocking and coming into my room. <laughs> oh, yes. 
it's almost like a kick the door and I'm like, boom. <laughs> and I'm still nursing a one-year-old. Yes. Yeah, quite, quite the age spread. So you've got your hands full. How do you have the conversation around masturbation? That's the part that most people get really uncomfortable with because it's part of the pleasure conversation. And it depends on how you want to approach it. But you are pretty much saying as we begin puberty, as these hormones begin to change our body, you might also have different feelings, different urges. And part of that is, look, we all, we all have genitals. There are, I mean, I like to throw in extra facts because I'm, um, so things like there are a lot of nerve endings down there. And sometimes what people do is they may touch themselves in order to feel pleasure. And because of all of those nerve endings, it may feel enjoyable. And when people do that is called masturbation. And that can be something someone who has a penis does or someone who has a vulva does. Totally normal. It's just something that you need to do in a private space when you're in your bedroom, when you're in the bathroom, those are private spaces. And that may be somewhere that you do that, but definitely normalizing and also discussing it with both males and females, because I think that gets lost a lot of the time on females. And that conversation about masturbation doesn't really come up until like later teens. Have they talked to you about porn? Yes, that is, very challenging with how savvy <laughs> everything is. It depends on their age. I mean, um, off the top of my head, I think the average age of viewing porn is something like an eight or nine years old. Like it's ridiculously young. And most of the time that, that people are exposed to that is because a friend showed them a photo of something like on their phone, on their device or through the computer. And a good way to kind of have those conversations you're identifying what porn is, but you're using age appropriate terminology. So you'll link it back to genitals, how they are something that is a private space and that is something that is not publicly viewed. So you're explaining that, particularly if they have a phone, that's kind of the initiation point that I would encourage having conversations with because it's very easy to accidentally find something online even if you don't mean to, and it gives them the skills to recognize what something is and then take the steps necessary. So you're explaining that, look, sometimes there are adult images, adult videos on the internet. It is pictures of genitals or maybe a video of something involving genitals. So if you see something like that, that's adult content. And if you do come across that, I would really like you to come to me and share that with me so we can make sure we're, we're staying away from that because it is something that is only for adults and it's not something for people under the age of 18 or however you wanna phrase that. But what you're hoping to do is give them enough information at their age level so if they do come across that, they know what to do to, to exit out of it, to come to you. And also if there's ever a situation where someone else might be showing them something they know like they it's not a questioning they kind of already know about it and then you kind of work through as a parent help them process that that's a hard conversation to have 
Yeah, there are a lot of age appropriate books and things like that, that gives you the specific like kind of wording that you can speak to them about. I have seen some resources off the top of my head. I don't have them in my head because that is becoming a, a huge issue with children exposed to porn and also kind of leading into child pornography for when maybe the expectation is that if they're dating, they send nude photographs to their boyfriend, girlfriend. That was definitely something that kind of shocked me being in the schools. There was a student that came to me that said, look, my boyfriend expects me to send these things. Um, and I worked through that with her and being like, look, it's not an expectation by any means. It is something that you do need to think long-term about. And I, I understand that right now you're probably not thinking that, but the thing with the internet is once the photo is there, it's in the cloud, it's on the internet, it's there. And this can be something that comes back to bite later on. Also, you don't know that the image is just with that person that you shared it with. Someone else might get their phone, they might send it on to someone else. There's kind of a whole lot of repercussions that go from that. So really encouraging teenagers not to feel like there's expectations that they have to do. And also having that kind of pornography leading into imagery Nothing that you ever do on the internet is, is gone forever and that can severely impact. Like even if it wasn't you, you are in possession of it and explaining like the criminal aspects behind that is huge because teenagers are, are impulsive um, <laughs> and they don't necessarily consider everything else that as a parent, as, a, as an adult, you would kind of think through a little bit more. And then we essentially could be a, whole conversation about like revenge porn and all that kind of stuff, like sharing the image that was meant for you with other people because they broke up or something like that. Have you seen that? I've seen it at schools. It spread through the school. It spread through the area. So even if this student was to transfer to a different high school, everyone already knew about it. Her name became like not her name. It was all oh, that girl who, and which was very unfortunate. Did you coach her? Did you help her? It became more of a welfare. So it wasn't within my role. It, it handed over to student welfare. Have you come into sexual abuse or have you had to talk about miscarriage? Not necessarily with kind of the, the school age. I think that's definitely something that should be included because every other subject is viewed as something that will help students outside of life. But with sex ed, it seems to be very much kind of tight about the information because it's that fear of if I share with them, then they'll do it. But it's if I share with them, they'll be able to make informed decisions. How long have you been doing this? I started my business at the beginning of this year, but I've been teaching since 2013. Wow. So are you still teaching? Not at the moment. I decided to step away. COVID. <laughs> I figured that this was the push for me to put information together and, and share it out with parents because I had that realization in the classroom that I was only ever going to be able to reach a certain amount of students, but parents are going to be the ones that are there throughout everything and they can have that more consistent relationship with their children. And, and the great thing about sex ed is it opens that door to uncomfortable conversations having that open relationship and having them be able to come to you and ask questions and not feel like they're going to be shut down because of the uncomfortability you might have within yourself is, is huge to be able to know 
that you're their number one resource and that you can give them guidance and also help with the values and the emotional side because that was something that was really evident in teaching. We, I can give so much factual information to my students, but at the end of the day, the values and the emotions need to come from parents and come from the home. So you want to work with parents now. Are you going to form like a community around this? I've started to build one. I have a group on Facebook and it's called Intentional Confident Parents. So that's kind of a space where people can throw out any kind of sex ed question, where we can work as a group to be able to do that. I put little training videos and like information. This week's challenge is to basically have conversations about using the correct terms for genitals. So a little bit of a challenge depending on the age of the children, but like if that comes up, you're using the correct terminology, not like the PP, the hoo-ha and all that kind of stuff. So you're slowly introducing correct terminology because then it kind of takes that secretive out of it and opens that door to being able to speak with you. I have a online self-paced course that parents can kind of go through and it takes them through, okay, look, uh, we need to understand our own own values and the experience we want to shape and then leading into look this is the scope of sex ed this is the language we need to use because I think a lot of the time people don't talk about it because they don't have the language so then leading into like other factors like how society impacts and so you're basically kind of gaining skills and there's little um, action challenges so you're actually implementing things as well. I love it. I'm trying to think about the title for this. I'm like, let's talk about sex, baby. Oh, no. <laughs> That's funny because I, I did a podcast last week and it came out and that was like what I posted on my page. I was like a little bit of salt and pepper here. <laughs> I was like, this is perfect. <laughs> is there anything that I haven't asked you that you want to talk about? Having like those conversations, it's so much more than what we think it is. And I really encourage people to kind of almost like pull back the curtains of our mind and look at sex ed holistically because there's so much else that helps with development and so much of it isn't about sex and so much of it is protective to kind of help with avoiding exploitation and like control and abuse and, and things like that because as parents you have the innate desire to protect your kids and sex ed holds a big part of that if we can look at kind of the big picture of sex ed. Is there anything that you'd want to ask my daddy? I suppose the experience that he had growing up, how it was handled, and then how he would handle it now, knowing what he knows. I think having that kind of before and after would be really interesting. That's a great question. So let people know how they can connect with you and who you would like to connect with. Yeah, absolutely. Anyone who is interested in learning more about sex ed and how they can apply that with their kids would love to have you join us. I'm on Instagram as the Parent Sex Ed Blueprint. I'm on Facebook as the Parent SE Blueprint because Facebook won't let me use the word sex, <laughs> but that's a whole other story. And I have a parenting group called Intentional Confident Parents. And that's a free community. And if you head to my website, theparentsexedblueprint.com, there's a free like top tips parent guide that you can go ahead and grab that and run with that. And if you have any questions, always here for you to reach out to. Love it. Thank you so much. This has been so informative and amazing. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been good to finally chat. Yeah.
I cannot wait for my dad's response. Here we go. Quite a conversation. Oh, boy. (laughs) Sex education is really multifaceted. It's not just about the pleasure of sex. There's responsibilities about sex. There's also not only physical, but there's mental pleasure or anguish that can occur. It's very complicated. There's a lot to it. And therapy that's needed. Right. And the funny part is, is that your guest, Katie, is trying to make a roadmap to give people a chance to come out of the maze or to give them some directions, almost like uh, Google giving you directions on how to get to a place. If you're uh, going to a new destination, it's nice to have some direction of what you're getting yourself involved in. Wouldn't it be nice to have some type of pathway or guidance when you're going to get involved with sex with someone? And what does it all mean having a relationship with another person? Then you also hit the, the topic is that, are you allowed to have these pleasures even by yourself? Are you choking there? <laughs> yeah, that was funny, wasn't it? I don't remember us ever having a conversation about sex. Oh, uh, I I don't, I don't know. I think I've uh, chased after all you all, uh, but uh, not in so many words. The truth of the matter is, is that you have to be able to not only physically be able to handle it, as I mentioned, but you have to mentally be able to handle it as well. There can be ramifications later on. Your guest, Katie, let's give her credit. She's not only trying to give people a roadmap or educate them, but she's also putting on the defense to try to help people to be able to cope with certain problems that can arise. And she's trying to develop those skills with the parents as well as children and young adults and is finding out that it's not so simple just to talk to the students. You have to be able to sometimes have a collaboration with the students and the parents if it's really going to work. And if the parents are setting the wrong example or oblivious to what their children are doing, the children are going to find out or the young adults are going to find out in the street. An interesting question is, is that when I was younger, where did I get a lot of my sex education? And a lot of people are getting them from porn, going to different movies, friends showing you uh, stuff. There was all kinds of magazines that were quite explicit. And you could get tapes that were quite explicit. All the kids were able to get their hands on that stuff if they wanted to. And today, I believe that that happens where it's easy to see sexual behavior. And there's, of course, books on it and everything, too. Everybody seems to learn off the street might not be the best guidance. That may be some further instruction and explanation, not only about the physicality of it, but the responsibility of it as well is a conversation that a parent and and that young adult or, or a young lady or young man in your house should be able to go to their parents and be able to have a mature conversation about it. And those that can't, maybe like you just said, they need some guidance and help if they can't do it right. And some liberation. Right. And remember, when it comes to sexuality, when I was growing up, there's a lot of stereotyping of You know, it's okay for a a guy to be a little extra loose, but if a girl was extra loose, then all of a sudden, you know, she'd be called a whore or or easy prey for every guy that's around to take advantage of her because everybody else is doing it. 
unfortunately, usually that young female is the one who gets hurt. They're just reaching out for some type of love and affection that they're not getting. And uh, they think that that's uh, the way they get the extra attention. And then it turns out to be just the opposite of attention that they really ended up getting. And they end up getting even more hurt. It's a very difficult analysis. Yes, it's a natural thing, but under the right setting. In different religions, it's supposed to be also sacred and something to be shared between two people where it's not just for pleasure, but it's for something that's an, uh, an intimacy that's supposed to be shared between two people and not where you have these gangbangs. What'd you think of the blueberry dental dam? <laughs> uh, not my flavor of blueberry. <laughs> okay, all jokes aside, people are brought things out there and experimentation then becomes the issue at hand. So if you bring something out, or you talk about something, we do have to be careful the mannerisms that we present things, or people will want to try it out and see, and in more ways than one. I agree with that. You know, she's talking about safety. She wants to make sure that people know what it is to use a condom, know what it is to use a diaphragm, or knowing what maybe the pill is, to know about how you can get certain infections, bringing up all the variables that you can a lot of times are not really expressed when you're young. You just jump into it and don't take a lot of these factors into being, as well as, let's face it, if you don't hold back, the young lady can get pregnant uh, very easily uh, at certain times of the month when you're having that good time, okay? And expressing not only a good time with each other, but again, this is part of lovemaking where two people uh, get together as an, a natural thing. Let's face it, that's why there's uh, this issue of right to choice, because there's a lot of uh, pregnancies that are not planned or not necessarily uh, part of that dating process. There's a tremendous debate over uh, whose life is more important and who has the right uh, to determine whether the pregnancy continues. Is it just the woman? Does the man have anything to say about it? Does the baby have anything to say about coming into this world? Or is it just up to the mother? And then, of course, as you know, if certain abuses have occurred, it's a very complicated uh, issue when it comes to uh, the life of a child. And it only takes one drop to make the baby. You certainly can testify to that. It only took one drop to make you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. I think you uh, liked I that did. episode. Uh, I think you did. <laughs> <laughs> Today's episode is sponsored by Rin 10 Media. If you want to look and sound your best for a podcast of your own, you want to get in touch with Rin 10 Media. When I first contacted them, Better Call Daddy was just a twinkle in my daddy's eye. And now, only after a couple months in, we're at like 50 episodes. Reach out to info at ren. 10media.co.za and use the subject line Better Call Daddy. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and tune in. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show.